0: There is a Native American story that takes place during a time of great loss, a time in the seasons of the lives of people uh, where there was famine and difficulty and strife. And during this time, an old woman sat with her grandson, and she said to her grandson, I feel as though I have two wolves fighting in my heart, fighting in my heart. One is very vengeful and angry and self-righteous and cruel, and the other one is loving and kind, understanding, compassionate, generous. And the young boy asked his grandmother, which one will win, oh grandmother, which one will win? And the grandmother answered, the one I feed, the one I feed. And so I think we ask ourselves when we're in practice this question, which are the qualities of heart that we are nourishing? Are we nourishing the qualities of heart that lead us to... uh, places of strife in our lives, within ourselves, in our relationships? Are we nourishing those qualities of our heart which lead us to greater harmony within ourselves and with, uh, with others? Tonight I'd like to speak about a quality of mind and heart. It's one of the um, four sublime emotions and this one is called equanimity, because it takes a large measure of equanimity to live in this world, to see clearly, to not be repelled by what is difficult, to not run towards what is uh, pleasing and pleasant and try to hold on to it, but to see what's happening in the world and in ourselves, just as things are, without clinging anywhere, without having hatred, aversion anywhere. It takes a large measure to have the kind of clarity of mind and goodness of heart to do that, to not feed the unwholesome, to refrain from the unwholesome, as Sally spoke about the other night, and to develop the wholesome, to nourish what is wholesome. So this is what the grandmother, the elder, was talking about. How can we do that in ourselves and in the world? The Buddha talked about equanimity. He described it as resting the mind before it falls into extremes. Resting the mind before it falls into extremes. The extreme, on one hand, is uh, uh, greed, clinging, self-righteousness. And on the other hand is fear and terror and aversion, hatred. And the root of that all is ignorance, delusion. So how can we... um, Rest the mind. This is the question and the practice and the training for us. How can we rest the mind before it falls into those extremes? It's an important subject, quality of mind, to reflect on nowadays because we live in a world that um, invites us to easily incline the mind towards those areas within ourselves. We live in a time when fear and terror and aversion are used continuously to bring us to those sides, to pull our attention, to dwell on the negative. And to offset that, or perhaps as a way to distract ourselves from those difficult qualities to be with within ourselves and in the world, of course, Our consumer society provides uh, an endless array of opportunities for us to desire more and more, uh, to um, create attachment and obsession more and more and more. Where is the middle path? Where is it that we can rest the mind before it falls into extremes? How can we open to the outer conditions of the world and the inner conditions of our responses to the world without falling into extremes? This is a big part of our training, a big part of our practice. How can we connect clearly with what's happening, Not, uh, as equanimity is sometimes uh, erroneously thought of, is kind of a, a distant kind of disconnection with the world or ourselves but not at all so a lot of i think what we begin to ask ourselves on this spiritual path is how can we connect very clearly with what's going on not push away from what's difficult not cling to what's pleasant but clearly connect and see deeply what's happening see clearly see compassionately, see caringly. How can we have this balance of connection and caring? Equanimity means balance. It's even-mindedness. This is how it's described often in the Buddhist texts, even-mindedness, balance of mind. We might say balance of mind and heart so that we have this balance of clarity with that clear connection and yet this ability to really care about what we're being clear with in our experience in the inner world and also the outer world. The subjective experience of equanimity is a spacious balance of mind, not just a precarious balance as if you're uh, trying to be on a razor's edge of experience but it's more like a wide-angled lens that's accepting of all of experience, not saying that this is the only thing, this is the only way that I should experience life in this calm way, that equanimity can open to what are the ups and downs of life with something greater actually than calm. And that is this kind of wide-angled, clear balance. Of the Buddha's many lists, uh, you've heard quite a few of them during our time here together already. Equanimity is on the list of the seven factors of awakening. It's the last of those states of mind and the sublime state of mind of equanimity that allows us to be more mindful, to come closer to the object of our meditation, moment to moment, to see it more clearly, without reacting to it. It's one of the four divine states. And uh, I'm sure you've heard that intertwined in several of our talks already, the four Brahma-viharas. Brahma means divine or high. Vihara means abiding place. This abiding place is not outside of ourselves. This abiding place is a place we get to in our hearts, like the grandmother was talking about. So it's one of the four divine abiding places in our hearts. They are uh, metta, or loving-kindness, which you've been practicing here on retreat. And then this is the basis of them all. When metta is turned to suffering, the um, aspect of compassion comes out of that. So this loving kindness or this caring that's turned to suffering is uh, turned into compassion. When this care or this love is turned to joy, it's turned into sympathetic joy. The aspect of sympathetic joy comes out of that. And so this is the third of the Brahma-viharas. And the fourth, which is the crown of all of them, as the Buddhist texts say, is equanimity. Because oftentimes in our own experience, we we can see with ourselves and in our relationship with the world, when we've tried everything, when we've tried a basic human kindness to be with our experience, and even that isn't working, and then we open to caring for what's happening in ourselves or in others and bringing that very uh, more refined aspect of compassion to what's happening. And we find uh, that that can't work. Sometimes we bring uh, compassion to what's difficult in ourselves or in others and we end up drowning in it. Uh, When we can't do either of those or when we can't be joyful for the joy of another another. Uh, uh, s- another aspect that we see in ourselves, we're, we're the opposite of joyful, we're envious with the joy of another. When nothing works, we fall back on the crown of all of the four Brahma-viharas, which is equanimity, where we simply surrender and say, this is how it is right now. And it's not just, this is how it is out there in the world, that there are these ups and downs going on in the world. But we see the ups and downs in our own hearts, and we say, this is how it is in here too. And we come to be more and more balanced, more and more okay with it. It's said that uh, equanimity really connects to all the others. And if it didn't connect to all the others, the others would not be complete. With loving-kindness, for example, if equanimity were not part of loving-kindness, were not supporting loving-kindness or intertwined with loving-kindness, we would not be able to open our hearts boundlessly to all beings. There would not be... The possibility of having this immeasurable impartiality towards all beings that you practiced this afternoon. Without equanimity, we're not able to truly open our hearts to uh, the old and the young, the short and the tall, the healthy and the sick, the um, the people of different colors and it's very, very important for equanimity to be part of metta or else that boundlessness, that that place where we can open to all without discrimination would not be possible. It gives us an even loyalty in our practice of loving-kindness where we're able to Say we get to a difficult person, which is often our friend or our family member, somebody very dear to us, not Saddam Hussein, but actually someone in our own family oftentimes. And we're able to open to this person and say, I can accept you more and more, even though it's a little difficult now, but I can accept you more and more just as you are, warts and all all the difficult parts of you too it's said with equanimity that it endows compassion with an even unwavering courage and fearlessness to be with what's happening in the world that's difficult and what's happening in ourselves that's difficult able to face dukkha as Steve spoke about the last night um Uh, without flinching. It, It allows us to lead with the heart into suffering and to be able to say, I can face this, leading with the heart into what's difficult, with fearlessness, with courage, not be destroyed by a sense of hopelessness, by a sense of helplessness. Mother Teresa is one of my Um, great mentors I never met her in person but coming from a Catholic background um, I really have gained a lot by just watching her in her life from afar she needed a lot of equanimity to be able to be with each of those suffering beings who were dying her aim, one of her aims was to bring in one dying person a day and help one dying person a day to live with dignity and She did this one dying person at a time uh, she cared for that su- for the suffering, but it took a lot of equanimity to be able to do that. she would not be able to lead into those streets of Calcutta from any place else but her heart and say, I'm just going to take this one aim today of finding one person and helping that one person. So how can we be with the world and not be destroyed by helplessness, by hopelessness? Sometimes we can't do it with compassion alone. We need equanimity, and that's why it, this is what makes compassion powerful is equanimity. With sympathetic joy, it said that we can be wholeheartedly and fully happy when another person is happy. Sympathetic joy is being happy for the happiness of another. And it said that this is one of the most difficult things to do. Of all the four Brahma-viharas, this is uh, by far, for many people, the most challenging because we're often assailed by the opposites of sympathetic joy or some of the opposites like comparing ourselves, envy, jealousy, demeaning, diminishing their happiness. But with, uh, with equanimity, we're able to see a lot of things, a lot of things we're able to see that this precious life um, is so short and when somebody has some happiness to enjoy, it's like you want to double their happiness there's a lot of suffering in this world, one of my friends when I'm happy it's, it, you know it's really helpful to have a, a mudita or sympathetic joy mentor Someone you can go to to share your joy, because so often you know people tear it down. But one of my friends, uh, I go to him and I tell him what's happening—that's happy in my life—and he always says to me, "Double the pleasure." Like, <laughs> and I just love that. It's like he, you know, he—he he knows it's so—it's so difficult in life, and he—he he wants to be. Happy for my happiness, and happiness is so fleeting. And it's one of the things that we're able to see with equanimity, that indeed, happiness is so fleeting. It's not permanent. So why not enjoy it while it's here, and why not help others to enjoy their their wholesome happiness? We see with equanimity in this deep knowing the impermanence of all of life. We know that... Yes, there's happiness now, but just around the corner we don't know what there will be. So we have, even with happiness, we have that deep sense of balance, that wide-angled lens on it, where we can focus in on that happiness but not cling to it. And this is what equanimity allows us to do. So it's very useful in worldly um, situations, of course, but it's also very, very deepening and very powerful in our practice. It's called the doorway to peace because it is the sublime experience that is happening just before the entryway to nibbana or to the unconditioned is why it's so important. It's the actually the state of mind that's developed over and over again as all of the ups and downs of practice are being uh, faced and open to and accepted, experienced, more and more without flinching, without reactivity. That's why it's important to be able to go through all the ups and downs of practice and not cling to what's pleasant, not push away what's unpleasant for the very reason that going through the ups and downs of practice develops equanimity to a very powerful degree. It supports deeper and deeper realization. So as we engage in our practice here, the practice that we do in intensive retreat, where we're opening to what's going on in our hearts, where we're doing our practice with our moment-to-moment experience, the, not the events of the world out there, although they do affect what's happening in here, of course. But we we come closer to the moment, imom, to moment to moment events of our heart, and it begins to be with equanimity a kind of exploration, a kind of discovery. So that with equanimity, we're not opening to what's difficult and saying, "Oh no," but we're saying, "Aha." This is how it is, and it, and that discovery, in that discovery, we can actually get curious about what's happening. This is one of the benefits of equanimity: is that it allows us to actually come closer to get curious about what's happening beneath all of the uh, thoughts and and spin I put around everything we discover the inner terrain of our lives and we open to the awesomeness of the flowing on of life. The moment-to-moment experiences that are flowing through or that make up what we call this mind and body. So as we do our practice here, we begin to see with greater clarity the currents of change constantly affecting the inner experience of life. Outer changes affect inner changes. And the Buddha talked about equanimity many times in connection with what he called the eight loka-dhammas. Loka means world and dhammas means just how it is. The eight how things are in the world, the eight ups and downs, the eight worldly conditions, vicissitudes of life. And so they are praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, joy and sorrow. These are the eight ups and downs. And none of us can deny that. And each of us can see in our lives how we can put our experiences into one of those niches. The Buddha often talked about these highs and lows in this way. To be happy. Rest like a great tree in the midst of them all. Rest like a great tree in the midst of them all. And oftentimes in his uh, talking about equanimity, or at least in the... English translation, I often see this word, rest, because it is a great feeling of rest. One of the subjective experiences of equanimity is this feeling of inner uh, core restfulness, no matter what's going on. And maybe you can connect that up with your own experience here in retreat, where Uh, some of you have mentioned to me that things that usually bothered you, you can see, they may come up as a little niggle, but they're not uh, a great wind. They're not pushing us back and forth so much. We're able to stay a little more steady. Emily Dickinson, I'm just remembering, says... uh, Mm. steady is a ship uh, whose anchor is very deep and this is like what equanimity is it's like having a very deep anchor deep into the understanding of life where we can see the highs and the lows and, and be able to say this is life and and not try to get away from it, but actually to try to be with it, with a deeper sense of harmony. This resting like a great tree in the midst of them all, it's it's easy to say, of course, but we know how challenging it is. The painful habit patterns get exposed in our practice here. The patterns of reactivity... uh, We're faced with something that's difficult and uh, we see fear arise or aversion or pushing away arise. We're faced with uh, pleasant experiences, pleasant sights, pleasant sounds, and we find ourselves rushing towards them and wanting them to stay, trying to hold on somehow, trying to make them permanent. It's not a feeling of rest. When we do that, it's a feeling of running away, running towards. So these painful habit patterns get exposed to outer conditions. When outer conditions arise, we feel the aversion, the blame, the greed, the fear, the self-righteousness. And then we look more deeply, perhaps, and we see the inner conditions that are arising in response to the outer conditions of weather or food or other people, and the response to that, which may be anger, fear, blame, wanting. And then there is a a whole other layer, a deeper layer of feeling in ourselves. When we see those conditions of anger, fear, and blame, we put another layer, by habit, of feeling guilty or feeling not worthy, feeling inadequate feeling shame, feeling more aversion, more reactivity. So we we see how much these layers and layers of reactivity uh, begin to form a cocoon or a world around us that we live in. And what happens with equanimity is we begin to loosen those filaments of that cocoon, of those layers and layers that are created. And we begin to see through those filaments. It's easy to lose confidence in ourselves in practice to get closed down, to feel unsteady and not so balanced when we don't know the way. A lot of the way is just being able to rest and relax and see this is how it is right now. To actually be able to just Accept the moment just as it is. One of the phrases that we use in equanimity is, or that I use, is, May I accept this moment just as it is? Because when that's not happening, we're often creating another layer of that cocoon of delusion that we continue to live in. So whether it's in my practice and it's difficult and there's reactivity to what's going on outwardly or reactivity to my own previous layer of reactivity, I try to remember, may I open to, may I accept this moment just as it is. Being human requires us to open to and live more wisely with how it is in this world. Oftentimes those layers of that cocoon that we live in um, is just rejecting it, resisting it. This world with its joys and sorrows, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, the highs, all the highs and the lows. A lot of times uh, this question that, that I continually ask myself is, How can I live in harmony with the transience of this world, the transience of all those loka those vicissitudes? How can I live in harmony without succumbing to its oppressiveness? Equanimity allows us to do that, to live more fluidly uh, with all of that, to kind of float... Sometimes we need to float with it and sometimes we need to, you know, get ourselves together and be a little more focused. But until we know how it is, we can't know what to do. We can't really have a clear response to what's happening. The first response is just to know this is how it is. But oftentimes we're figuring out what to do. We're react we're reacting right away out of fear or out of wanting it another way being fluid when we need to Uh, really having strength and pulling ourselves together at other times I'm just remembering um, a time when uh, the daughter that Steve helped me raise uh, Therese she just told us that She wants us to pay her for every story we tell about her. So I'm (laughs) (laughs) going to... It was a time when she just learned to drive. And, um, (laughs) of course, Steve and I had to practice a lot of equanimity, you know, when we allowed her to take the car out and... um, uh, do what they do, you know, when they take the car out, whatever it is, I never want to know, (laughs) (laughs) uh, one of the first times, or it might have been the first time that she drove us, and this has to do with balance, is she drove us to the shopping center where we live, and, uh, she was dropping us off, and she knows us really well, of course, so she, uh, we were going Christmas shopping, which, um, is hard to do with Steve. <laughs> and he, it's really hard for him to be with me when we're shopping too. So it goes both ways. But um, Therese looked at me and she said, Mom, now focus. And she looked at Steve and she said, Dad, you float. <laughs> We still say that to each other. When we can do that, you know, when we can be fluid about what we need to do because we're seeing clearly, we can focus in, we can float when we need to, and that allows us to move more deeply into the mystery of life, this mystery that we're all exploring. Like, what is this mind and body anyway? Who do... What is this that we call ourselves? What is Kamala not in relationship to being a partner, being a mother, being a dhamma teacher, being a human being, being anything at all? What is Kamala apart from all of those concepts? How can I understand that? How can that be understood? How can that... Uh, mystery be open to. And we need a, that equanimity to be able to take us there. Otherwise, we're, we're just fighting it. We're, we're reacting. And this is the uh, enemy of equanimity. This is called the far enemy of equanimity. It's called reactivity. We're either reacting with attachment or with aversion. So in this... Uh, far enemy of equanimity both attachment and aversion are included because if it's pleasant we react with attachment if it's unpleasant we react with aversion now this is a this is something where we need to understand more deeply about equanimity because Oftentimes we think about equanimity as being equanimous with what's happening in the world and maybe more deeply being more equanimous with what's happening in our own hearts as our mind-body unfolds itself and and it is being observed through the lens of mindfulness here, moment-to-moment in practice. But how the Buddha referred to equanimity, I mean reactivity more, was this sense of uh, when a, a feeling, this tone of pleasantness arises, and it's not being seen so clearly, the mind reacts with attachment. When this feeling tone of unpleasantness arises, the mind reacts with aversion. So the Buddha in, uh, in his teachings talked about it at that very deep level, which is why in practice we often try to lead you uh, in your personal practice or hear an instruction in the hall to noticing those very subtle experiences, the Vedana we call it, those uh, Feeling tones, pleasant, unpleasant, and also neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And when we can notice there what's happening, when we can be mindful, when mindfulness can arise with pleasant, attachment is not likely to arise, the reactivity to pleasant. When mindfulness can be present with unpleasant feeling tone, then aversion and all the various strands of aversion are not likely to arise. So this is getting to a deeper level of reactivity and the level that the Buddha was talking about in the deepest sense of the word. A phrase that Manindra would often use, uh, Manindra is one of our teachers, um, to connote, this experience or to bring on this experience, he would often use this particular word, the law, and that that doesn't mean, you know, the police. It means um, the way things are. And he would use it in this sense, surrender or uh, recognize what's going on, surrender to the law, surrender to how things are. Oftentimes when I'd go to him with things that were happening in the world and, uh, you know, I would just kind of go round and round in my head about it or continue on and on with blame about it. He would stop me and stop me from doing that, you know, kind of making more cocoons of delusion uh, and say, recognize what's going on. Surrender to the law. This is how it is. And when he said that, it didn't mean that I should not do anything about what's going on in the world. I should not take action. But he meant, look with clarity. See with clarity how things are. Rest in the clarity of that. Know what's truly happening. And then from that, some kind of response can come that has more wisdom and a genuine compassion to it. So he didn't mean to be a doormat to life, but to open to what's happening. Come close to this moment is a way that I would translate that. When I would be having difficulty in my practice and I would go to him and I'd say, I just can't do this anymore, or I want to leave, or it's too difficult for me. Um, and he he would say, surrender to the law and ask me, what's happening right now? To come close to the moment of fear or come close to the moment of confusion. So often I, I say that to myself, surrender to the law. This is how it is right now. Don't use my energy trying to get rid of it. Don't use my energy trying to figure it out, where it came from, where it's going. Use all of my energy just to be with it right now in this moment. That is how it's going to deepen into the mystery. But that isn't possible without equanimity. It's not possible without that spacious, caring balance which is that subjective experience of equanimity. It's not possible when we're in the what is called the far enemy of equanimity, that reactivity, when we're fighting it, resisting it. One time, Manindra came to our house... And he was healing from an operation. And I wanted everything to be perfect for him. And um, I wanted him to see what a good yogi I was, what a good mother I was, you know, and how good I could take care of him. And I wanted things to be quiet. And at that time, there were um, growing children in the house. And one of them was Therese. So the, here's another story I have to pay her for. And she was, um, in her hormonal years, was very, you know, up, very difficult. And uh, she's going through it pretty well. And at what, she came to this place where it was very difficult for her and just trying to show her independence, which is good, you know. And so she had this big um, mm, kind of shouting match with her, uh, with her father. And Manindra and I were sitting at the table and I was trying to have it really quiet for him. And, you know, he was sitting to my left and I was sitting on the other corner here to his right. And they started shouting at each other. And, uh, her father is a, (coughs) is a very good man. And he's always been an excellent father. And, um, but it's difficult time, sometimes, you know. And so his voice started raising with hers. And uh, so she, I, all I could hear her say was no. And he would, say, he would say, yes, Therese, you have to do it this way. You know, this is whatever what was going on. And she said, no, I won't. And he, yes, yes, yes. And so it started getting louder and louder. And so she ran around us down the hallway into her room and uh, this hallway was very near where we Manindra and I were sitting just around the corner she ran down the hallway she went into her room and she slammed the door in her father's face and her father said open this door and I was sitting there with Menindra just slinking in my seat cringing and saying oh I wish this wouldn't be happening you know I was, I was so ashamed because I you know, wanted it to be perfect, and I—I I wanted to run away. I wanted to get up and, and shout, "Shut up!" to everybody. You know, I mean, I, all of those things were happening in in the mind for me. And uh, she, after she slammed the door, then he went behind her and said, "Open this door. No, open this door. No, open this door, or I'll kick the door in." <laughs> so. <laughs> It's not Steve. <laughs> and Steve is not his bio- her biological father. So This is a normal family, right? Tell me this is a normal family. So so She says, "Go ahead," she says. "Go ahead," she says. So uh, he did. <laughs> Manindra turned to me at this time it's like I wanted to run away I wanted to you know and Manindra turned to me very calmly very compassionately I could see in the meantime his eyes kind of darting around I'm sure this didn't happen to an Indian family you know and he turns his his uh, hand to me his right hand he puts it on my left forearm and he says surrender to the law like this is how it is you know, wake up <laughs> and his compassion and his calmness and his spaciousness to accept this is how it is helped me to accept this is how it is it helped me to see if he could accept it if he could accept that this goes on in, in a family and he could see cringing and you know whatever was happening in me maybe I could accept it Maybe I could calmly be with what was going on in my heart and out there in my family. And so, you know, just being with it for a while and then being able to get up and in some way approaching them and saying in some way, okay, this is enough. And and having that kind of inner balance and having that kind of calm and that steadiness that equanimity is, if it could rub off on me, it could rub off on my family, which had an effect. Not always, but, you know, it does. So equanimity has many strengths that allow our practice to open to, to recognize what's happening. And not with what is called the the far enemy of equanimity, a kind of um, apathy or a kind of disconnection, a kind of distance with, uh, you know, saying, yeah, I'm clear, I'm okay about this, I'm cool with this, but really you're raging inside. Or you've got emotions that you're really not uh, recognizing. There's elephants in the room that you're saying, you know, there's nothing happening here. So with equanimity, you're, you're able to see all of that really connect and not be disconnected through the what's called the near enemy of apathy. This is the, the near enemy where we think we're cool. We think it's really okay, but we're not feeling what's happening. We're not really acknowledging. We're not really recognizing what's happening. It's not to mean that we need to get lost in it and drowned in it. But um, there's a connection there, a clear connection. It supports mindfulness that way because it brings it closer. And uh, it's not an emotional emptiness. There's a a richness in our life. We feel the, the currents of life going through us but it doesn't mean that we're lost in the current or drowning in the current of life. So gain and loss is something I want to talk about. When I was uh, in India with Manindra one time, he met... uh, another Theravadan Indian monk, which there aren't so many of. You know, most Theravadan monks are uh, Burmese or Sri Lankan or uh, Thai. But this was a rare one. And he was the head, the preceptor of a temple in Sarnath. And so we went to, we were in Sarnath and we went to visit this monk. And they were old, old friends. And... um, they they had a great time together i had a lot of sympathetic joy watching them talk to each other and it was interesting because they would just both keep talking and it's not like they would interrupt each other but they just both kept talking even at the same time you know <laughs> they were just had to put every, you know all of their get everything in there <laughs> all at once so um they had a great time. We were there for a couple of days, a couple, three days. And we went to visit this monk. And then we were leaving and we were... I was walking down the street in Sarnath with Manindra and he was behind me with this other monk. They were, they, they were still talking and they were holding hands. And, um, and Manindra is here, he's getting older, you know, just before he died. And this elderly monk, quite elderly. And so I, I turned around once and they had stopped and they were holding each other's hands and kind of looking at each other. And both of them had tears in their eyes. Now I'd never seen Manindra cry up till that moment. And I really never thought about a monk crying ever, you know. But when they they faced each other and i don 't know what they were saying, they spoke a little bit in their own Indian language, but it was as though they were talking about they wouldn't see each other again, perhaps because they're both elderly and so um, then they parted and uh, and manindra he fully felt what was happening, and that just watching him was a whole teaching about how he was with that outer condition of the parting, you know, the great joy of coming together, the gain and the happiness of coming together, and the loss of parting and the sorrow, joy and sorrow, gain and loss. And he was just fully with that, with not an emotional emptiness, but quite a fullness of heart. And and um, then we left the monk behind and uh, we continued to walk down the street and Manindra said something like the Buddha said this is so parting is sorrow parting from those you love is sorrow the Buddha said this is so but he didn't he didn't flinch from that you know and still he, he had his tears but not kind of a lost in tears, but letting them flow and truly feeling his sadness, his heart. So it's not this dry, sterile, emotional emptiness at all, but the ability to be with all conditions, inner and outer conditions, in a very full yet balanced way. I often think about the Dalai Lama because he's had so much um, practice with compassion and equanimity. We know him a lot for being one of the most compassionate human beings alive in our world today. And I think we're all so lucky to have this kind of a being in our presence. And um, one of the things that we don't see that allows that, compassion to come forth is his equanimity. If he didn't have equanimity, his compassion would not be so powerful. And he would not be able to make the uh, decisions that he makes to go forth in doing what he needs to do for his country, for his people. And one time someone asked him um, about it, you know, how can you, how can you do it with such calmness, with you know, you, you never seem to have any anger <clears throat> or impatience about it. Or, And His Holiness said, in that state of mind, and he was talking about equanimity, you can deal with the situation with calmness and reason and not lose your inner happiness. And at a different time, but connected to this, um, a reporter asked him, you know, why uh, are you able... To be so patient with what has been going on in your country to your people. And um, he said, His Holiness responded, "Uh, Our land has been taken, our people have been harmed, our temples have been taken. Why should I let them take my mind? Why should I let them take my mind? And so it's what we do when we lose our equanimity. We just allow habit to take over, not a kind of clarity with recognizing clearly with what's going on. So there are two levels to bring our equanimity to. Of course, the level of the external conditions that we are now going back out to in the world. When we go back out into the world, can we, are we able to say to ourselves, may I be with this experience with equanimity? You know, there, uh, nothing really big has happened in the world since we've been in here. Uh, a lot of uh, the same old thing, you know, with the political scene, and, um, uh, except for the Boston Red Sox one. <laughs> so, how can you be with that with equanimity? <laughs> so, I'm going to give you reason to practice. Um, I'm sure you'll hear more about that later. So, I'll, I'll save all the wonderful details for later for those of you who are Red Sox fans. So, how to bring Equanimity to the external conditions, not getting lost in exuberance, you know, but feeling the joy, being fully present with the joy, but not, you know, getting lost in it or letting it overcome us. Not getting lost in the sorrow of what's going happening in the world, but being fully present with it. So bringing equanimity to the external conditions of the world and being able to say, this is how it is right now. And in that right now, we have the wisdom of knowing and it will change. It will change. This is what equanimity deepens us into, this understanding of change, this understanding of we can't hold on because of that change. And so we also bring equanimity to the internal conditions, those conditions that respond to the outer conditions of the world and also respond to what's going on within ourselves. But can we say when joy and sorrow arise, this is how it is right now, and it will change. May I open to how it is right now with equanimity. So the outer and inner conditions, bringing equanimity to those. Um, Understanding what the far enemy is, reactivity, those habit patterns of the mind that uh, get us in trouble and we can't see. So bringing, when we've already reacted, bringing equanimity there also. Knowing when we're not connecting and we're really just be, having this passivity or this distance without any connection. This is the near enemy of equanimity. Getting to know that more clearly, being clear about every experience. So resting the mind before it falls into any of those extremes, um, joy and sorrow, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, all of those, knowing them clearly, having a sense of balance around them, caring with our heart, clarity with the mind, these are the balances of equanimity. Hmm. So I'd like to end with uh, something beautiful that was written by Achan Sumedo, the Venerable Achan Sumedo. He he titled this Letting Go, but uh, it it really has that feeling of equanimity to me, which is um, the sense of the mind state that's there when this letting go is able to happen very deeply. The mind is like space. There is room in it for everything or nothing. We always have a perspective Once we know the space of the mind, its emptiness, armies can come into the mind and leave. Butterflies, rain clouds, or nothing. All things can come and go through without us being caught in reaction or resistance. This is our practice. So let's sit for a moment. May we be with things just as they are so that we can see things just as they are. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma.